the identity of a person who does or says something matters. On February 8th, 1986, the National Basketball Association, that's the Professional Basketball League in the United States, held its annual slam dunk contest. Now, some of you may not know what a slam dunk is. Uh, a, a dunk is a play in basketball where the, the player jumps with the ball and they actually put it inside the hoop. It's something I've never been able to do. I can't jump high enough and I'm too short. So, but they jump it up and they actually throw it into the hoop. So it's not a shot from a long distance away. It's very close. They put it in, they dunk it into the hoop. Now, the following morning, fans who had not stayed up late to watch the outcome heard the news that a player from the team Atlanta Hawks had won the contest and he had done so with, among other things, a 360-degree dunk. Now, again, for those of you who could care less about basketball, uh, a 360-degree dunk is if, if the hoop is here, they jump, they spin around completely in the air, and then dunk the ball into the hoop. That was impressive news. But then came the truly astonishing part, the identity of the player who had won the contest. His name was Spud Webb and he was only five feet, seven inches tall. That's one meter and 70 centimeters tall. That's 15 centimeters shorter than I am. So I, have, I guess I have no excuse. But do you understand what I'm saying? The event of winning the dunk contest is only meaningful because of the identity of Spud Webb, who he was. And actually, Carlos, do we have that photo? Can you put that photo? This is a photo of all the people who competed in that contest. And yes, Spud Webb is the one in front, the one who looks like a child. He beat all those other giants. Okay, you can, you can take the photo off. Um, any other player who might have won would not carry the same significance. The identity of a person who does something matters. As I hope you already realize, today is Palm Sunday, and it marks the beginning of the church's commemoration of Holy Week. Holy Week, Holy, Week, Holy Week takes us from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the Last Supper, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the trial before Pilate, to a cross at Golgotha, to a garden tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, to the glorious empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. This morning, I want us to focus on the question of identity, and I specifically want us to consider the question who died on the cross? I know that we would all answer immediately, Jesus. And I would agree, but who was this Jesus? Why does it matter that he was the one who died? The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, take great pains to answer this question. And one of the primary ways they do that is through their accounts of what we celebrate today as Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem in triumph. All four gospel writers include this story in their accounts. And each one provides a unique perspective. And though our primary text this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 21, I want to start by noting a comment that John makes when he's talking about this event in chapter 12, verse 16 of his gospel. So John 12, 16 reads like this. At first, 
His disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. As we work through this passage, understanding the import of who died on the cross, I acknowledge that as the events were unfolding, those living them did not understand the depth of what was occurring. But the events took place, according to John, to fulfill prophecy, and they were written down so that future generations could look back and see the evidence and celebrate the truth. We are those future generations. We are these disciples who only realize after the fact that prophecy has been fulfilled. These verses were written for us. Matthew wrote this for us. He's careful to establish before the cross just who Jesus is because the identity of the man who dies on the cross is of utmost importance. So I'm going to read the account of the triumphal entry from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The first identifier of Jesus that we see in this account is the title Lord, found in verse 3. Jesus says that about himself. He tells his disciples to go untie a donkey and her colt and bring them to him. If anyone asks what they're doing, they should simply say, the Lord needs them. You'll notice in the print that the first letter of Lord is capitalized in the NIV, but the other three letters are not. And that means that the word Lord there is being used as a title rather than a name. You may recall from our study of Exodus that when the word Lord in the NIV is written all in capital letters, it is the name of God, Yahweh. But in this case, it's a title, Adonai in Hebrew or Kyrios in Greek. And it's a title of authority and power, the Lord. And we see that authority played out even in the same passage. Jesus not only knows where the donkey is going to be, but he sends his authority with his disciples so that even though they are questioned, the owners let the donkey go to a complete unknown. I've often found this to be kind of funny. And I wondered if, if thieves today, you know, robbers, assaultantes, if they would use this request, if they're caught, 
red-handed, stealing a car or something, if they just turn to the police and say, oh, the Lord needs it. I wonder what would happen. Probably not much, other than them going to jail. Why not? Because the authority of the Lord is not with them. The man who died on the cross is Lord. Lord of all. Total authority, total power, total knowledge. Now, verses 4 and 5 carry the next identifier of Jesus, and that is that he is king. Matthew clearly explains what's going on. These things happened to fulfill prophecy, he says. And he quotes the prophetic words from Zechariah. Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet, one of the minor prophets. That just means that his book in the Bible is shorter. And in in chapter 9, verse 9 of the book of Zechariah, he writes, Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus entering Jerusalem in this way was a direct fulfillment of a prophetic message from hundreds of years before. And the message is clear. Jesus is king. He's entering Jerusalem as king. Of course, he wasn't the king that the people wanted. They wanted a king who would kick out the Roman invaders and return Israel to her previous national era of glory under Kings David and Solomon. But Jesus, the king, was not limited in his reign just to Israel. He's king of the universe, king of all and over all and over everything. The man who died on the cross was king. In verse 9 of Matthew chapter 21, the crowds who are escorting Jesus into the city, cheering him, celebrating him, and acclaiming him, they use a word that we today associate with Palm Sunday, and that's the word Hosanna. In past years, I've shared with you the meaning of the word, and most of you know it. It means save us, or save us now. By shouting out, Hosanna, the crowd was calling Jesus their Savior. And this is also an allusion, actually, to another Old Testament uh, passage where David, the psalmist, writes in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, David had written, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. Now, interesting to note that in, in, in what David wrote in the Psalms, the word Lord is the name of God. So there is actually a correlation here where as the crowds allude to that passage, they're also alluding to someone who is coming as a direct answer to their situation from God himself. O Lord, O Yahweh, O God, save us. O God, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh. From the house of Yahweh, we bless you. The crowds were right. Jesus was a savior. And he had come in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God. But of course, they were wrong about the kind of savior he was. He was not political. He wasn't a military savior. His salvation was miraculous and it was divine. He would save souls from eternal damnation, from eternal torment, and eternal slavery to sin. A much greater salvation than just a national restoration that lasts for a generation. The man who died on the cross was the Savior. The crowds follow the cry of Hosanna with another identifier. 
They called Jesus the son of David. Now this requires a little more knowledge of Jewish history for those of us who are Gentiles. Um, when the nations of Judah and Israel were invaded, defeated, and taken into captivity, the Jewish prophets who spoke to the people on God's behalf foretold that God would restore Israel even though the nation had been destroyed. They prophesied that a new leader would arise, a new king, and this king would come from David's line. And this king would bring Israel to even greater glory than they had enjoyed in their past. The Jewish people called this leader the Messiah. And they were waiting eagerly for him to come. Each generation of Jews, each generation of the Hebrew people longed for the Messiah, the son of David, who would set all things right. And now this man Jesus enters Jerusalem in triumph and authority, stirring the whole city. And the people, caught up in the hope, excitement, and expectation, acclaim him as the son of David, the Messiah. By the way, the Greek word Christos, which we we translate in English as Christ, that word actually means Messiah. That's the meaning of the word. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's part of his identity, Jesus, Messiah. He is the answer to this prophecy. He is the answer to the hopes of the world, the longings of the world, the need of the world to be set free and to be restored. And the people were right. Jesus was and is the Messiah. He did come to put all things right, not in the limited manner that the Jews expected. He came to set all things, all things, things, all of creation, right. The man who died on the cross is the Messiah. Matthew closes this passage by noting that the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred when Jesus arrived and that people were constantly asking who he was. It's interesting um, in this day and age, I don't know how many interactions you've had with other people outside of your immediate household. Um, Some of you may still be going to work in one way or another. Others of you are staying at home. Some of you may have contact through FaceTime or Zoom or Skype or even a regular old-fashioned telephone call with other people. But consider how much of our conversation is about the coronavirus. I'm guessing, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not a sociologist, I'm just guessing maybe 90% of our conversations, maybe in one way or another with other people, somehow center around the coronavirus or the effects of the virus. I don't know. I may be wrong on that. But the point I'm trying to make is, imagine this is worldwide, this kind of obsession with one topic. So when, when, when Matthew writes that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred by Jesus coming in, maybe that gives us an idea of what it's about. It seems like each conversation was about Jesus. The primary question on people's minds was, who is this guy? Who is this man, Jesus, that kind of appeared out of nowhere and he had this huge parade that led him into the city with people chanting and shouting, saying, save us now, calling him the Messiah. What's going on? Who is this? And then the people who had at least some knowledge, they answered with, he's he's the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth. 
Now, it may be that to us, the title prophet seems insignificant in light of who Jesus was. But what is a prophet? A prophet is one who speaks a word from God to people. So he's an intermediary. How often do we read in the Old Testament prophets, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And they were supposed to pass the word of the Lord on to the people. John calls Jesus in his gospel in chapter 1, the logos, which means the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, God's ultimate and most important communication to people is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses of that letter read like this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now listen to this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Have you ever considered that Christ's very incarnation and being is God's communication of himself to people? Jesus is the voice of God to humanity. The man who died on the cross was God's ultimate and perfect prophet. The final identifier I want to note is that Jesus was the Passover lamb. By combining the accounts of this triumphal entry from all four Gospels, we can come to a, clear, a clearer timeline of events. So this procession into Jerusalem occurred on the 10th day of the Jewish month, the month of Passover. The Passover itself was celebrated on the 14th day. In Hebrew counting, this meant that Jesus came into Jerusalem five days before Passover. They count the current day and they also count the day of the event itself. So 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, five days. The 10th day of Passover month, so five days before the Passover, was the day that the Passover lamb was to be chosen and presented. The perfect, spotless, white lamb, the best one from all the flock, was set apart to bear the sins of the nation and die on the altar in the temple. And the blood of the lamb symbolically took the place of the blood of the people who deserved to die for their own sins. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, while those crowds had no idea, it was no accident that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 10th day and that he answered in that way, the perfect spotless Passover lamb of God had been chosen and was being presented as the answer to the sins of humanity. This was the high point of Christ's popularity. He, he never received more acclaim than this. He was celebrated, and I think for, for most people, we would have been tempted to ride that wave of popularity and have it elevate us and take us as far as it could. But Jesus didn't do that. 
The only possibility of a perfect human, if we're talking about a perfect Passover lamb, was God himself. The man who died on the cross was the perfect Passover lamb because he was the son of God. Now, what's the point? Why does it matter who died on the cross? There's a series of heresies involving the identity of Christ. We call them Christological heresies that in one way or another compromise either his divinity or his humanity. One of those heresies claims that Jesus only became all the things we have just listed. So he only became Lord, King, Savior, Messiah, Prophet, Lamb, and Son of God after his resurrection. So that everything that happened during his time on earth, it was, he was just a man, a man fully surrendered to God, um, who therefore is our example of what a life fully surrendered to God could be like, but he wasn't Lord, he wasn't King, he wasn't Savior, he wasn't Messiah, Prophet, Lamb, or Son of God. All of that only happened after his resurrection. But that completely negates the power of the cross. It's because of Jesus' identity before the cross, which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John go to great lengths to expose. It's only because of identity before the cross that the cross has any meaning. The Lord died on the cross. The King died on the cross. The Savior died on the cross. The Messiah died on the cross. God's perfect prophet died on the cross. The spotless Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world died on the cross. The Son of God, who was God himself, died on the cross. If Jesus was anything less than these things when he died, then his death has no power to forgive, no power to rescue, no power to restore, no power to redeem, no power to defeat death itself. Every head of state has bodyguards. Uh, in the United States, uh, the organization that is tasked with protecting um, the top-level politicians is called the Secret Service. And those men and women are trained to protect the person they're guarding at all costs, even at the cost of their life. So if someone levels a gun at the person they're guarding, they're supposed to and they're trained to step in front of that bullet and take take the, the punishment that was meant for the politician and the leader. God and Jesus turned things around. The president steps in front of the punishment aimed at his most humble servants, you and me. The Lord, the Messiah, the King, the Passover lamb, the son of God, the prophet, steps in front of the death that was meant for you and for me as a consequence of our sin. And that's, that's the whole point of the gospel. Because the king offered his life in your place. The Son of God offered his life in your place. The Lord, the prophet, 
the Passover lamb, the Messiah, the Savior, died in your place and in my place so that he would receive the punishment that was meant for us. That sacrifice is offered to us. It's offered to all humanity. But it must be accepted and received. If I offer you a gift and you don't take it, it's not that the gift was not given, nor that it was not offered, but that you, did, you chose not to receive it. And this is the case with the salvation and the redemption that God offers us through Jesus on the cross. He offers that gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we celebrate Jesus today because he was all those things, King, Lord, Prophet, Messiah, Savior, Passover Lamb, Son of God, before the cross. And because he was all those things on the cross, and because he continues to be all those things today. I've said many, many times that communion is one of the most powerful ways that we rehearse and celebrate the gospel. Jesus himself is the one who instituted it. At the Last Supper, Jesus is the one who said to his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood. He's the one who said that as often as we do this, we should remember him. So as you and your homes prepare the bread and the juice or the wine, take a moment, even as the few of us who are here in this building will do now, to reflect, to be quiet before the Lord, to allow him to search our hearts and see if there's any unconfessed sin that we need to deal with as we prepare to celebrate communion, which is a commemoration of his death and his resurrection.